Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. This is Shannon Fisher. I'm your host tonight. The name of my show is The Authentic Woman. And I always like to offer differing perspectives on the female experience in America. And tonight I have a guest whose perspective on the female experience is different than probably any one of the listeners out there. She has been a writer and a performer since she was very young and uh, was had the great fortune to work with the Second City Touring Company, which is out of Chicago. So she has quite an impressive resume there, and she's also written a book called True Porn Clerk Stories. And it is a hysterical account of her days working a day job as a clerk at a video store. The video store had an extremely large pornography section, and so she wrote little vignettes about the customers and the interactions that she had with them, and it was it's, it's quite a fun read. I highly recommend it. You can link to it through our podcast page. And with no further ado, I would like to introduce my guest tonight, Allie Davis. Welcome, Allie. Thank you. Um, thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. So I guess the, the first question is just kind of building up to, you know, to your career. When did you start writing and performing, and, and what made you decide um, that that was something that you wanted to pursue? Um, I started writing and performing in nursery school. Um, it was just, it was something I was always interested in. Uh, my dad taught uh, theater and English literature at a college in Pennsylvania, so I saw him directing shows from when I was a very little kid. I knew that that was something that I wanted to do. And uh, so, yeah, I was always interested in that, in doing uh, – I was actually a band geek in high school, so I, I kind of regret missing out on some of those, like, high school drama club years, but I definitely did, like, the one-act showcase every year and things like that to keep my hand in. Sure. And um, and then anytime there was an opportunity in school to like, oh, can we do this project as a skit? I was always up for like, yes, let's write this as. <laughs> That's awesome. And then and so and then you decided to be a theater major in college. I did, which was tricky. I mean, it was you know, it's it's not like it's not like theater majors are where all the bucks are going. You know, it was um, it, it was I did uh, theater and then anthropology for a double major because it's super practical. Um, sure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just love it. education is. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I actually had some good encouragement from uh, my mom when I was talking about, you know, what I wanted to do. And she, she manages a sales team, which is uh, not something I've ever wanted to do. But she was saying when she's hiring people, she looks for people who have good thinking skills rather than what was your major. So, like that reassurance helped me choose what I what I wanted to study instead of what I thought I should be studying or what it was practical to study. That's wonderful. Um, so many don't have that support from their parents, and so they end up majoring in something that they absolutely despise and you know regret it for the rest of your life. So I'm glad you had that from your parents. That's great. Yeah, I was very lucky with that. Um, yeah, and it has been. And I was lucky to go like William and Mary is such a nerd school, but. Honestly, the fact, like, what I do as a day job now is I, I write, edit, and proofread in a more corporate setting. But I, I got to do that because William and Mary was so damn anal about making sure <laughs> that you had to leave with a certain set of writing skills. And, um, and, and that was really useful. Like, the, the fact that our theater department was as nerdy as it was turned out to be very useful as well. And, um, like, I started when I moved to L.A. and really needed to find some other work. I just went to an agency and took the proofreading test and they called me on my way home because they're like, oh, you did really well. <laughs> so, like, it was, yeah, so as much as people down, downgrade literary, literary skills or basic literacy right now, like, it really can help you, like, oh, I could pay rent this month, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's an incredible skill to have. Yeah, writing doesn't always have to be creative. Sometimes the technical aspect of it is the most important when it comes to bread and butter, that's for sure. Um, yeah, so it you, is. You, you started doing improvisational theater at William & Mary. Um, is that yes. correct? You were in an improv troupe there? Tell me about that. Uh, oh, it was wonderful. It was, uh, it was called IT. And uh, it's, you know, I'm not... I was never, like, an ingenue type. Like, I was an ingenue when I was 17, you know. <laughs> it was not. Uh, I 
I'm definitely for comicals now. Uh, I'm I've kind of finally grown into my age range, but it's weird when you're in a college theater department and you don't fit the roles that there are for you necessarily. And so IT was a way to always be performing, even if I didn't get cast. Like I think my sophomore year, I don't think I got cast in anything, but I was performing probably most weekends, you know. And so that was great. The camaraderie was great. The training was great just because you, I mean, there's no better way to learn to perform than to get up and do it over and over again. And then just to have that close group of friends was was hugely important to me. You know, in college, you kind of have to find your slice of it. And it was like, oh, these dorks, it's awesome. Uh, and then, yeah, I just loved it so much. Like I saw a show and I knew I knew that was something I wanted to try to do. And um, didn't get in the first time I tried out, uh, which is like, you know, keep going. Uh, and in fact, Craig Kutowski, who you'll see on TV all the time now, I think he got in his junior year to the college improv group. group. So I always like mm-hmm. caution people, don't. It's not about being the superstar your freshman year. It's about seeing it and wanting it and working at it. Uh, that really gets you good at it. Most definitely. Well, um, you definitely got good at it because following <laughs> college, went up to Chicago and worked with the Second City Touring Company. So uh, yes, that's, which that's... I feel very... <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I feel, yeah, that was incredibly lucky. And that was another, I didn't get in my first try. Um, but that was a huge, God, that was such good training. And it was almost like, like Second City just makes, it's like a, a, an old-fashioned, like almost Middle Ages apprenticeship that you go through where um, you you move up there and you take classes and you work hard and then if you do well enough in the class, they they have these giant auditions a couple once every year or two mm-hmm. where it's um, God I think uh, I think one year they saw 800 people over the course of two or three days you know you just yeah, wow. these massive yeah auditions. Um, and then you, so if you make it through those, you start out as an understudy to the touring company, and then you move into touring. And while you're touring, you get to understudy the two uh, resident companies there, which is really terrifying and fun. Uh, but it really is, you really are learning your craft in a lot of ways. And um, Yeah, I mean, City is the holy grail of comedy and improv. I mean, there are so many admired and prestigious comics that have come from that background. It must have been... Um, I don't know. I would have been honored to be in that too. I think the word that you use, honored, is is really great. So, did you enjoy the touring? Did you enjoy the experience? Oh yeah, I loved it. I mean, the first time, yeah, like you're saying, the first time I walked up the stairs to apply for a bartending job there to <laughs> to pay for the classes I wanted to be taking, like you walk up the stairs and there's pictures of uh, you know of Gilda Radner, there's pictures of John Belushi, it's these people that have come through there, Shelley Long, all these performers, like just going up the staircase is like I'm in this building. <laughs> um, so that I like that. Being a part of that history is great, and they're actually really good about giving you a sense of the continuum that you're a part of, which is really nice. It's not that you're doing it in a vacuum. It's that you you know you're a part of this family. Um, and I actually got to, while I was touring, I was at a, I was at a Hollywood party, um, and Catherine O'Hara was in the room. And my sister's going, go over to her, go over to her, tell her you're in Second City. And I was just like, oh, God, I can't. It's Catherine O'Hara, you know, because uh, she'd been a huge influence for me. She was on Second City television, and she'd done these movies that I loved. And I yeah. finally got up the nerve to go talk to her and just opened with Ms. O'Hara. My name's Ellie Davis. I'm in the touring company. And she just, she couldn't have been nicer to me. She She just was there's this welcome that you get from other Second City people. It's like, oh, yeah, your family. <laughs> she, was, she was wonderful, yeah. Um, a, a, so, yeah. Work for life. That's, that's really, yeah, because, I mean, that's an experience that you've shared that most people don't get to go through. And so to have that with, with all of your predecessors and, and the people that came after you, that's, so do you have any, any crazy stories about your experiences while you were there? Oh, yeah, because, I mean, touring's great. It is, you you know, you get up, if you're on a long tour, a lot of times, there's a lot of driving through Indiana. I mean, there's a lot that's not glamorous. Um, 
because we were, we were based in Chicago, would drive kind of all over the Midwest. But sometimes you would go on a long tour where you get in the van, you drive for eight hours, you do a show, you go to bed. You get in the van, you drive for eight hours, you do a show, you go to bed. And um, you're there. We were in a van with uh, six cast members, a musical director, and a stage manager. And so that was your eight people for three weeks. Oh, wow. Uh, but, uh, so that gets intense. Um, and you, you learn a lot about each other. But then, you know, you're going to parts of the country, you're bringing satire that you that was created in a liberal theater in Chicago, and you're taking that to Wyoming. Mm-hmm. So we had, you know, you had tours where you realize that, like, oh, the scenes are still working, but they're taking stuff we're saying sarcastically as, as a straight-on joke, which is weird. Oh. Uh, I think the weirdest tour we had was uh, we were in Georgia, and the audience couldn't have been nicer. And actually, Jack McBrayer was understudying with us, and he was delightful. Uh, but we're, uh, we finished the show, and it's gone well, and these people come up to us afterwards. And people are, especially when people have seen you do sketch, they're usually pretty warm because you made them laugh for a while. But when you've seen them do improv, and we would always do an improv set after the show, uh, people really feel like they know you because they've kind of seen... They've seen how your brain works. Right. And how so, you react to certain where you take the skit, sure. Yeah, sure. So they usually feel like you've had a conversation or you've known each other for a while, which is really nice. Um, but we don't <laughs> we're we're uh as an actor you're you're at a little bit um at a loss because that you don't know them. But it's this nice this incredibly nice simple. So it's not unusual for people to try to chat with you or want to take you to drinks or whatever. Um and these people were super nice, and they're like, hey, we live just across the way. Why don't you come over? Uh, and there were six of them, I think, and they're like, come by and have some drinks with us after the show. It's just a couple blocks away, and it'll be super fun. And they seemed really nice, and they were inviting us over as a group. Like, occasionally, as a woman, you'll have someone invite you out, and you're like, no. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I don't want to end up in a ditch. <laughs> and honestly, like my brain, the couple times that happened, I'd be like, I can't miss call in the morning. If you murder me, I'll miss my call in the morning. <laughs> uh, but they they invited us as a group, and we go over, and it's this house party that the six of them are having, and it starts to get weird immediately. <laughs> like. They've invited us over, and people start casually mentioning all of them at different points. Like, oh, you know, what's, um, I forget the woman's name. Like, oh, a couple more drinks, and Gretel will have her top off. And they kept saying that. And then they kept saying that with a little more spin on it. And we're like, have we, have we been invited to an orgy? (laughs) It's just this weird, like, (laughs) starting to get a vibe that it's maybe not just friendly drinks. (laughs) Oh, wow. So how did you get yourselves out of that one? We did, Well, the thing about touring is you can genuinely plead that you're very tired. So there was a point where we're, we're not all into whatever's, whatever's supposed to happen or, you know, what they're uh, testing out to see if we're into. So uh, we extracted ourselves as a company and went out in the van, and then two of the guys are like, you know what, I want to see what this is. So they two guys took the van back to this house and they said that there were these cheers when the van pulls up and they're like, yeah. And then when it's just the two guys that pile out of the van, there's this moment of like, (laughs) and we had definitely been invited for our gender balance. (laughs) Oh my stars. That, that must've been, yeah, that would definitely be uh, on the top list of, of strange things to happen while touring. Most it was super well, weird. I mean, yeah, very well intentioned. I mean, <laughs> sure. could not sure. have been friendlier. <laughs> yes, but perhaps not as clear as they should have been at the beginning about the intentions for the evening. Well, I guess so. I mean, on the other hand, um, it might be something you have to ease <laughs> eight people into. I don't know. <laughs> Well, that's true. That's true, and good for them for trying. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, for again, very... those who don't know, what exactly <laughs> is improvisational comedy? I mean, what? How, how does improv work from the beginning? You know, from the beginning of the performance to the end of the performance. 
what does the audience experience from, from the performers? Um, that is a very good question, and I forget that people don't know that. You do something for 20 years, and somebody's like, all right, people don't always know what that is. Um, it's, uh, you'll, you'll see, I mean, you'll see stand-ups improvise sometimes. If stand-ups doing what's called crowd work, they're mm-hmm. working off the top of their head. So that's it at a very basic level. But most people, when they talk about improv, they do mean group work or at least two-person work. And mm-hmm. uh, you get a germ of an idea from the crowd, and then, uh, and then you just let it tumble out from there. It's very, I don't know, it's like a fast, funny zen. Like, it's, you have to, it's one of those things that you have to get rid of your own blocks to let it happen. Um, and you'll see, if you go to a show like a comedy sports show, what you'll see is uh, improv games, which are very fun. And you'll get a, like, whose line is it anyway? You get a framework for this is, this is the jungle gym that the actors will be playing on, and now you get them started. And so the game is, you have to say scenes going with lines in alphabetical order, or one of you sitting, one of you standing, and one of you is leaning, and if anyone changes position, you all have to. And so sometimes you'll see an evening of short form, as it's called, games like that, um, okay. which are very, yeah. And that's, that's kind of like being a sprinter. In, uh, they're both, both kinds of improv are, are slightly different but interesting skills. So if you're sprinting, you're doing short form games. And Second City definitely does some of those. They'll kind of dot them through the show to keep the audience up and happy. Yeah. And then if you go to a theater like... Uh, UCB or uh, what used to be called Improv Olympic, but now it's IO, uh, or actually there's several different ones now. You'll see what we would call long form, which is you get one suggestion, and that's for the entire evening. And, wow. Uh, yeah, so it's fun. So if you're a student of uh, the big improv guru, Del Close, he would teach something called the Herald, which actually our improv group at IT did, at William & Mary did kind of a, a bastard version of <laughs> or like a kind of a telephone game version of Hand It Down. We would do Harold. But it's uh, where you have kind of these scenes that interlock and you have an overall theme, and it's much more of a like an impressionistic piece. Uh, or there was a group I played with for 10 years in Chicago, kind of simultaneous to doing Second City. I was in it actually before and after Second City. Um, this group called Baby Wants Candy, where we would get a title and then we would improvise a musical in the space of half hour, and then we expanded it to about an hour or 45 minutes. Oh, that um, sounds fun. It was super fun, terrifying. Every, every time we did a Baby Wants Candy show, and we did, God, we did more than 1,000 while I was there, but every single time I'd be like, why am I doing this? Why did I just do this to myself? Well, sure. You're uh, like, I'm, I'm, I have to write a musical off the cuff. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but what fun for the audience to watch, and what fun for you guys to do once you get used to it. I mean, that it sounds like a lot of training is necessary for improvisational theater in in all realms. I mean, you can't just wake up one day and say, "I'm going to join an IT troupe." You really need to study it. Is that right? You do. I mean, there is some people. Some people are naturally dive in well. I mean, it's like anything. It's like any skill. Some people have a certain amount of good at it when they start, and some people can train forever and never get beyond that good. <laughs> but you can not so true. You can get better and better at it. A lot of it is learning to get out of your own way. A lot of it really is learning to listen carefully to other people and really react to them well and to. Yeah, to be able to think on your feet. So it's it's a lot of training, but a lot of it is very zen in that it's like it, improv is hard until you realize it isn't. You know, it's one sure. of those things where it's almost like meditation. Um, your doubts off, yes. turn your mind down, and then just let it flow. That yeah, yeah. And and honestly, That's Del awesome. Close, who was teaching all these comedians, like he did have this big. Uh, kind of a cult background and esoteric thing. So I really think for him, improv was something else in terms of creation and manifestation. Uh, mm-hmm. But for us, it's it's really fun. And then, I mean, the luxury of like Baby Wants Candy or like when you have a touring company, when you have a group of people and you really get to know each other, um, it's very fun. I knew that uh, Peter Gwynn, who's a guy I improvised with for years, I knew that I could throw a ball up in the air and 20 minutes later, Peter Gwynn would be like, yep, I remember it's up there and grab it and run with it. And that was a huge luxury. Or, um, you know, other people, we had a woman in the group who was kind of awesomely crazy. And 
<laughs> she would take these sudden right turns in the middle of a scene. And you'd say, like, oh, hang on. And I toured for three years of Second City. And, uh, and it was a group three years, or did the, did the people rotate as, as the three years so, went on? Oh, people rotated and out. Uh, people, as a slot would open up on, like, the main stage, someone might get moved up to the main stage or their ETC company, or sometimes people quit. Uh, so, yeah, you'd have this gradually changing, um, what's that paradox of the Athenian ships? Where <laughs> we, have the, we have the ships in the Athens Harbor, the, the same ones that were there when the ancient Greeks were there. We just replace the board every now and then when it rots out. So you'd have... Sure. I was... I was always in Greenco, but Greenco changed completely during the three years I was there. But uh, you definitely get to know each other very well. And then Baby Wants Candy, imagine. we had the same core group for about 10 years, which was a huge luxury and very, very Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I mean, to have that kind of – and, you know, like you said, you develop chemistry. You know that if you're throwing a ball up in the air, someone's going to catch it for 10 years. That's amazing. So are you still in yeah. contact with group members from, from your company's past? Oh, absolutely. It is. I mean, you're, yeah, your family or you, you know, you find out uh, when someone does well, you're always happy, or you find out someone dies occasionally and you all get in touch. Or um, we just had this a really nice, I did a show, there's a second city of Los Angeles that does some really nice shows. And we did a best of show, and my friend Rebecca, who I didn't tour with, but who I was in Baby Wants Candy with for years, she and I didn't realize we had both been cast in that show. And then we walked in for the first meeting, and we're like, ah! And it's oh, great. Wonderful. I mean, it's, yeah, and it is just like you know, it's like stepping into a warm bath, like getting to getting to play with someone that you've gotten to play with for so long. It's it's wonderful, and it is. You just get to know people. You get to know weird parts of people so well, um, and that's huge fun. I still have people who know that um, because because <laughs> I was an anthropology major. There are people who will get on stage with me and immediately start deliberately calling apes monkeys or vice versa <laughs> <laughs> because they know that drives me up the walls. <laughs> Oh, but that's if really I'm being funny. A... So do you, do you correct them normally as part of the performance, or do you, do you let it go? Well, you have to, there, that's the thing, is that the, I, the ideal situation to do that to me is in a situation where I can't correct them and still be a good improviser. And I got they, know that it will, they know that it will drive me extra crazy if I have to just let it go. That's right. That's right. That's funny. Now, so you've also done uh, improv on cruise ships. Yeah. How was that? And that was, was also like... for Second City. Oh, oh God. Okay. And so we a ridiculous and wonderful job. And actually, if you if you sail Norwegian, you'll probably be on board with the Second City troupe. Um, and it, it was great. That was after I moved to LA that I started doing it. And um, it's crazy. And it's it's one of those luxuries where my almost all my time performing, except for a month here and a month there, I've always had a day job because that's what you do mostly with acting uh, and right. with writing, frankly. And then uh, when you sign on with the, for the ship, that's your job. Your job is just to be an actor for four or five months. Um, so that oh, so itself it is a long, huge luxury. It's a long, a yeah. You wow. do usually a month of rehearsals with Second City, and then, yeah, they, they, it's, uh, you know, you're on that boat <laughs> for a while. Um, so on the one hand, it's weird because you're, you are kind of saying goodbye to your life for a while. Um, but it's it's fantastic. You you're on the ship, you're part of the crew. Um, so you're in the crew bar and you're in these like special crew passages that the passengers can't go into. Um, mm -hmm. So you meet really interesting passengers, but you also meet crew members. I think my last ship there were 135 different countries represented among the crew. Wow. Um, yeah. So that alone is just. Um, the number of the different kinds of people you can meet is amazing. And, you know, the fact that you can go down and be perfectly welcomed at the India Day celebration and suddenly you're dancing with 15 different people at India Day is fantastic, um, uh, really yeah. fun. And then the travel, uh, the travel alone is amazing. Like, to get to, to do that and to be an actor, I'm still just like, how did that even happen? Uh, but like my, my, my first ship, we did New York to the Caribbean, which was lovely. Uh, 
And then my mm-hmm. second ship, we did Miami to the Caribbean, and then we did a transatlantic crossing, and then we cruised the Baltic Sea for a summer, which was... Oh, wow. I, I, I know, just astonishing. And it is one of those things where you wake up every day thinking, I'm really lucky to be doing this. Because <laughs> yeah, today I, mean, I woke up and we those... were in Stockholm. Yeah. Yeah, Most yeah it's just one of those anything like that, you know, and that's, that's the beauty of being in the arts and, and, you know, the different expressions and the different ways of doing it is that the experiences that you have as a performer are always going to be unique as opposed to getting up and going to the office, you know, like you do in a day job. But yeah. when you're doing the arts, it's just you never know what's going to happen. You do, yes. And, um, yeah, it was, it's, it was an amazing experience. And there are – there are little sacrifices you have to make where you, uh, when you're on a cruise ship, you have to do some regimented stuff. Um, like uh, Norwegian, to their credit, is very, very safety conscious. But that means, you know, getting getting a troop of actors up for the, you know, 8 a.m. safety drill. <laughs> like, ugh. Every day? Um, but not every day. They would do uh, once or twice a cruise. Which is very funny because okay. there was uh, a crew member who transferred in from another company that will remain anonymous. Uh, mm-hmm. But he starts, he gets on there and he's like, God, oh, you guys do all the safety stuff. My ship did once a month at most. And I was like, okay, letting all the relatives know not to go on that cruise line. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> okay, that's funny. Well, so yeah, back, to, it, back to the day job. So while you were uh-huh. acting and... And while you were up in Chicago, you, you did have a day job, which was uh, what would sound to some people just like a normal day job, that you were a clerk at a video store. Um, but it's a different kind of video store than your average blockbuster because it had a huge porn section, right? Yes, it did. Um, and that's kind of it – was, it was at that time – where, like, Blockbuster made this big deal about how they were a wholesome, family-friendly com- company. But at the time, which was uh, 2001, 2002, if, if, a, if a video store that was independent wanted to survive, they kind of had to have that. I mean, like, that was, that was what paid everyone's salaries. Um, and it was discreet in the sense that the top floor had uh, mainstream movies and a genuinely great cult section and a genuinely great foreign section. Like, we had some movies... The whole reason I even started working at the store was that I used to go there. I used to do reviews for Amazon.com back when they used actual staff reviewers. And um, it was this video store I would go to where if I couldn't find a movie anywhere else, I could find it there. Um, And so I knew the store. And one day they had this help wanted sign up. And I was like kind of desperate. Like it was a little bit of the post H.W. Bush election. We we just wanted this Mm -hmm. trough and my, my freelance writing just disappeared. Right. And, uh, and I'd been making a movie on that, and suddenly I'm like, wow, I have no money coming in. <laughs> and uh, So there's a help wanted sign in the video store, and I go, and the manager's like, great, I just need, need to make sure you can handle the downstairs. And he took me down, and these two brightly lit, fluorescent lit, lit rooms, completely white, white linoleum tile, and then just filled with porn. Um. And what was your first thought? Well, it was, I mean, it was, it's amazing looking because it is, it's this white room and then all these very colorful boxes of, uh, the first room was all women showing their orifices. And then the second room was gay porn. Um, and it was startling. I mean, like I had, you know, I'd taken women's studies courses in college. Like you're supposed to be ready for it. Um, right. But it was an interesting butting up against of like my, basic freedom of speech and sex positive thinking. And then like, okay, so here it is in practical form. How do you feel about this? Right. And also just suddenly being in a room. And and your blog became extremely popular. So what, what kinds of things were you writing in your blog? Well, it was, it was, um, the, the store really did force me to, really think about stuff I had thought about in the abstract, but here it is in the practical sense. Here is someone bringing six fetish videos with a fetish that you are theoretically okay with, but practically bothers you. Right. And he wants to chit-chat while you're ringing him up. Okay, <laughs> Miss Feminist Theory, how do you feel about that? So part of it was 
was just me working through that cognitive dissonance or like, oh, here's a layer of, of prejudices that I didn't know that I had or here are things that I feel weird about and I know that I shouldn't, but I do. So how do I... So it, some of it was very thinking and some of it just was um, just what it was like. I mean, it wasn't... There, there became more and more female clerks there when I worked there, but at the time I was one of only a couple and like it was weird, like there, it, it took a while for the male customers to get used to me, and then uh, it was so getting to be the time hiding their faces, oh, go ahead. Just, they right, or circling your... around the store, the the you. old-fashioned like here are six foreign movies, and oh, oh, I don't know how that porn. Go ahead and bring up that porn one in there, you know, <laughs> like right <laughs> that, um, or it was also. Um, it was going to be the time where more and more people were getting their porn off the internet. So the kind of customer who came in was maybe a walk of life I wasn't used to. Like, you think about being a broke actor, you think like, oh, I'm used to having a lot of money. But actually, that's a pretty, I had a pretty middle class form of brokenness, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if I took a bartending or a tating wable, waiting tables jobs or a tating wable jobs, it's much harder to get. Um, because of the way I speak, because I had a certain level of education on my resume, weirdly enough, you can get a better kind of table waiting job than some people can. You can get a different kind of table waiting job than some people can. Uh, yeah. Or bartending, like there's a certain layer of that. So there's, um, as much as you think you're broke, there's a whole level of broke that you haven't seen or a whole level right. of just different circles that you're not interacting with. And And that was interesting of like, oh, this is a side of the city that has been invisible to me. And so just dealing with, you know, you're saying uh, porn unites everybody <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so it was interesting, like just coming up against people that, um, that weren't restaurant customers, that weren't improv dorks, that weren't middle-class people going to an improv show. It was like, oh, here's a whole... Um, you know, you don't don't see your own privilege or the bubble you're in until someone punctures it. And so part of it was me dealing with that puncturing. Uh, part of it just was, like, it's weird. It's weird to have, just hand someone a box of naked people on it and then to do that all right. day long. And so just the feelings of, and, it, and, and there were days where, uh, like, the the process of getting numb to that was also very interesting. And there was a day that I don't think I even wrote about because it, it was so startling to me. But, like, I, would, I got to where I was usually the opener in the morning. So the first thing I would do, and, you know, 6 in the morning, I'm downstairs, so, like, I'm just drinking some caffeine. And the first thing I'm doing is turning on lights and, and stacking and alphabetizing these boxes of pornography. Right. So you see naked bodies all day long, and you see pretty extreme things being done to them all day long. And I remember I had a day where, um, you know, it's the old, if you have time to clean, if you have time to clean. So at downtime, you were going through our DVD places and cleaning and polishing the DVDs. And there was a woman on one of the DVDs who was beautiful. And I noticed, which I hadn't done in months, you know, this weird, this weird moment of like, oh, my God, I've been, I've been just completely blocking out these really extreme images for so long. And right. and it was it was Yeah, wow. Yeah, and so it was this weird suddenly this kind of startling and almost upsetting moment of like, oh, she's beautiful and I noticed that. And maybe that's a that's a shield that I have to put back up or maybe that's uh um so yeah it was interesting. Any any customer service job I think you're gonna get a good blog out of if you are observant just because people are people are so great and so awful (laughs) and if you're in a customer service job you're going to hit both ends of that spectrum oh Um, yeah and what i love so much um is that you take great care to kind of toe the line perfectly between being non-judgmental and being completely (laughs) grossed out it's it's interesting (laughs) it's so interesting to read um and so 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 all of these stories are, are vignettes uh, essentially describing individual customers and individual circumstances. And so your yeah. blog became popular. What made you decide to turn it into a book? Um, it, it, 
uh, I could. <laughs> um, I had kind of wanted to turn it into, I had tried uh, shopping it as a screenplay or a pilot, and it didn't quite work with that. And um, when I first wrote it, it, like it was, when it first got big, it was not, I couldn't sell it to a publisher. Uh, because now it's very common for like, oh, this blog got huge. Let's grab it and publish it. And that mm-hmm. hadn't happened yet. And so everyone was like, oh, but it's been on the Internet for free. Um, which was like, oh. And now that's the business model. Uh, so there's, uh, there's a problem with being a little too ahead of your time. Uh, so it was uh, – Amazon made it very easy to self-publish, which I did. And then uh, – you pretty much print on demand, so it was easy to do, it was fun to do, and then I have also had numerous plagiarism attempts over the years uh, with varying degrees of success. And so, really? in a way, it was also making sure it was out there as mine, uh, and it just make it a little harder to do that. Uh, but also, it was yeah. fun. Like, I've always liked the piece, and having it, the original website it was on, Kevin Mullaney ran the Improv Resource Center, and it was originally something I wrote for a couple dozen friends to read, you know, <laughs> that was the other thing was I didn't think, I didn't think it would, would turn into, you know, suddenly getting 30,000 hits a day and, and exploding the way it did. Um, yeah. But, but it was this thing that suddenly became a burden on his website. So to, for him to be able to hide that and just me have it out there as a book was kind of, um, it just seemed like the right thing to do in a way. And I like, I like having it out there, but also, um, yes, you have to pay me a little bit of money for it. <laughs> really? That's fantastic. Sure. I mean, cause that, I mean, it's so entertaining. Are, are there any oh, stories you. from the book that readers have come to you and said, this is my favorite, this is my favorite character. This is my favorite story. Um, yes. Uh, anyone who has worked customer service wants to talk to me about Mr. Pig. Um, because who's, who's the only person I really just felt blind rage for. <laughs> but anyone who has worked a help desk or waited tables or stuff, like anyone has run into that guy. So um, full love, like giving me the solidarity fist about Mr. Pig. Uh, and then uh, oddly enough, like people, as as much as the book and the blog were about people that um, – frightened me or were unusual to me or, or uh, took me aback in some way. Like, I, honestly, like, people reading it really made me discover how wonderful most people are and how kind most people are. Um, and the number of people who dropped me a line while I was still working at the video store, they would email me just to say, hang in there, I like your writing, keep going. Like, something they totally didn't have to do, but bothered to do was wonderful, you know? That is and, wonderful. And actually, your boss found out that you were doing it. What was his reaction? You weren't fired. I was not fired. I was shocked that I was not fired. And luckily, um, I never used anyone's name in it. <laughs> I didn't. Um, uh, I think I used a couple of the clerk's first names, but I never used a customer's name. And so they heard it. I did it on, uh, I did bits of it on This American Life, and my boss was at a barbecue. And, uh, <laughs> and one of the barbecue said, <laughs> I think someone at your store <laughs> just did this thing. Uh, and they came in and they, they messed with me a little bit and they were like, it's fine. And um, I actually was like, oh, you should have plugged the store. Uh, but yeah, they were surprisingly cool with it. Um, but yeah, but the, the main story that people write me about is actually the one about Mr. Gentle, where there are two entries about a customer that I really liked and getting to be friendlier with him and I would and people write me or you know I'd be like you should ask him out I would, like I would get these really sweet letters about those two entries and it was like people have this people have this even people who came to my blog for the prurient tended to have an interest in in the nicer parts of it which I really liked that's great they well I mean it's written so well that you really do kind of feel like you're personally involved in these relationships that you're having across the desk with these oh, clients you. store you know I mean it's really um I don't know it's it's so it, it's so interesting because you, you don't you don't name them but but you give them names that describe you know kind of their character and the things that they're doing and and you that, you, that when you talk through an experience like 
someone was caught pleasuring himself in the porn room, and you had to yes. arrested and had to go to court about it. And the way you <laughs> describe that is just so matter-of-factly that it's just it, – it, 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 it's beautiful. I have to say it's so beautifully written. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's and really I, don't, I don't know – what it, like that happened very late in my tenure there. I don't know what that would, what I would have done if that happened in my first couple of weeks because it was just, you know, <laughs> you get, and it's amazing like that. And that's one of those little things that you're like, oh my god, the number of people who didn't finish, but you'd get on this intercom and be like, stop it, you know, <laughs> keep your hands where I can see them. Um, like the fact that the fact that there was a point in my life where I was used to that to mm-hmm. asking men to stop publicly touching themselves was kind of amazing. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a part of my life for a while. Exactly. Well, and that is, you know, odd jobs like that are part of the artistic career. I mean, everybody has a day job period of time. And some of those day jobs are more mundane and some of them are more interesting and get notoriety and turn into a book and you end up on NPR and, <laughs> So it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's really fantastic, um, the, the journey that this blog took you into a book. And then, so from, from the book, in there, you also talk about the fact that you're bisexual and that you're mm-hmm. really, really hoping that the people who are coming in to the store that are bisexual <laughs> um, are going to prove to you that bisexual is you know, completely bisexuality is completely normal and that you're going to be like, yes, my team is fantastic, and you were absolutely just distraught by what you found out. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, about that, that thought process that you went through. Uh, what is, it is one of those things where, because I was, I was out and by, but, uh, and it was weird, like it was, it wasn't something I wanted to bring into the blog at first because I really wanted to be as transparent an observer as I could in terms of, not in terms of knowing about me, but in terms of trying to be invisible and just report this out. But there was a point where I was realizing that there were so many more bisexuals coming into the store than I knew as someone who identified as bi. And I realized, like, oh, I really do have to back up that statement. <laughs> Here's how I know there's more than you think there are. It's because there's more than I thought there were. Um, but it was this thing where it was they, the people that, I don't know if they identified as bi, I think I used the term rented by the people that rented a spectrum of pornography that indicated they were interested in both genders. Um, it, it was, they were either the absolute coolest people who came into the store, and there's a few of those, but then there were just people who were just the worst. <laughs> and it was a little heartbreaking. It was so you're little, collecting but, this data, and you're really thinking that it's gonna it's gonna support your hypothesis, and your hypothesis was blown. But well, half wrong, yeah. It was <laughs> right. But it is. I think it's because it is, um, and it's it's become less so. But certainly at the time, like it was an orientation. Uh, it, it's not an identification that everyone's cool with, uh, and some it, to to identify yourself in a way that people in both the straight and gay community might have trouble with. I think, I think that's what caused the split. You either have to be completely comfortable with yourself and go with it anyway, or you have to be kind of crazy. <laughs> and that seemed to be where, how it was breaking down. Um, well, and I think keeping a secret makes, uh, of any kind makes people crazy, you know. So keeping a secret about something so personal and so profound in your identity as your sexuality, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, that's got a make somebody's head spin all the time. It, yeah, it's got, it is. It's being, being closeted, I think, in any way can do that to you. And so, yeah, there was, um, you know, it's still there. It's still, uh, there. there's a much bigger, there, like you really can say bisexual community now. And I have, I have lots of non-crazy bi friends now, just to be clear on that. But <laughs> you're also like, oh, and the main public face of bisexuality is Tila Tequila. So, <laughs> yeah. Still, still kind of a, a long road to go with that, um, but we're getting there, Definitely. and certainly, yeah, in, yeah. The media coverage has not quite caught up. Uh, not always, yeah. But there are things like, like After Ellen, which is a site that I write for now. Um, Sarah Warren, who founded it, explicitly founded it as a safe space for both lesbians and and bi women. 
And then uh, the current uh, editor-in-chief, Carmen Craiglow, and the managing editor, Tris Bendix, have been very careful about enforcing it as, as, not to, as a safe place for queer women in general. Um, and that includes trans women and bi women and lesbians. And that, having that space, I think, does a lot. And, and there are more and more places like that where it's even, where it's, you're not just out there alone being like, oh, God, it's being the crazy person, and that's it. Well, so how, so how does your sexuality kind of come to play in your writing there? Um, I mean, does it, does it come to play? And what kinds of things do you write for after Ellen? Um, I'm, oh God, I maybe, I might be the biggest dork at After Ellen. I mean, there's so many different kinds of dork, but, um, I do humor pieces. I do some pop culture stuff, like I'll recap shows. Um, I was lucky enough to recap Orange and the New Black, which is fun. Um, and I'm doing House of Cards right now, even though everyone's already watched House of Cards. <laughs> I've been doing weekly recaps of that. Um, but I also, the main thing I do, I started there. Uh, recapping the Rachel Maddow show every night, which was uh, hugely fun, uh, but also took probably five hours of my day every day because <laughs> because they're so careful about their facts that the idea of screwing up on one of my recaps somehow made me crazy. So I did a lot of checking and rechecking. I didn't want to spend an hour watching a show and an hour doing a recap because the idea of screwing up on that was not okay. Uh, so... Uh, so I did that for as long as I could, and then there's a point where uh, doing that and having a day job just just fried me. Um, but it was nice because I have uh, they they're they're so internet savvy and their producers are so keyed into Twitter and the internet and social media that I have kind of friendly relationships with some people. Not like we're pals and we have barbecues, but. Um, they were super friendly with people who were covering them on the web or people mm. who were involved in the show. And that's been, that was a very, that was a great experience. And now I write a column for them called Feminist Friday that's more of a news roundup thing. Now, you, you describe yourself as a First Amendment feminist. So what, what exactly mm-hmm. does that mean? Um, it is, you know, feminist gets, I, I think one of the great mistakes of the feminist movement is that we've let the word get taken away from us so much. And, it distorted into this thing where you're trying to stop anyone from having fun or you have to only talk in a certain way. And no, you can be a feminist and an artist. You can be a feminist and really enjoy having sex. You can even enjoy being a feminist and, you know, you can enjoy porn or kinky sex or whatever it is. You know, there's lots of different ways to be that. And so to, I understand, I absolutely understand the part of the feminist movement that has a problem with pornography. And I, um, See, even even just saying I don't have a problem with it is a tricky statement because there's <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that I I absolutely believe in your right to produce this movie. I just wish you wouldn't. It's sometimes my you know like it's uh, like oh yes you have an absolute right to do that and the world would be a better place if you did not. Um, so that's tricky. So. Yes, I, I believe in not treating women as objects unless that's something you've both specifically agreed to do. <laughs> um, and uh, th- th- uh, feminism is a way of looking at the world of everyone is equal, but as an artist, I think, I think it's important that, like, yes, you get to say things even when they offend me. You get to say things even when they make me very, very sad. Um, you get to say things even when they are, you know, demeaning to me doesn't mean I don't get to say some things back um so yeah so it's those two points were so important to me that yes I see this as a as a person who's passionately interested in equality but I also believe in your being allowed to say any vile thing you want to as long as you're not coercing anyone or making death threats I guess um well and in so your book you you the point you talk about uh you know certain Certain types of porn uh, is the degradation of women, but then uh, in the gay porn side, they do exactly the same things, degrading a male, and so it's more the act of wanting to degrade a human, whatever is you know your sexual attraction, than you know than women, and so it's kind of easy at that point to almost understand how someone could feel that way. Yes, it is. And that was one of those that was one of those things where I realized like, oh, I am running up against one of my own prejudices and I need to readjust because 
yes, there was a specific sex act that I just thought was just horrifying um, that involved a women and several men. And then I saw that same thing in the gay section. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> that's a different interpretation, and I really need to, I need to look at my reaction to that. And 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 am I, am I being sexist by looking at it in only this one way? Um, and I still I still don't understand the thing <laughs> that happens, but um, I had to back down and try to try to re I don't know recalibrate my my tolerance for it, or at least my my whatever floats your boat policy of like okay I don't I don't get it, but maybe it's not exactly what I think it is. You know, amazingly enough, there are things in the world that are not exactly what I think they are. So well. It's- um, and very few people have the kind of experience that you have had, uh, you, you know, up close and personal with the porn industry. I mean, and yours is obviously production, <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's really, I mean, you got a good look at the people that, uh, you know, people who have porn addiction and people who just sometimes watch mm-hmm. it. And, I mean, you can make a clear distinction, as you say in your book, that, you know, sometimes this is a serious problem in our society, and sometimes this is just something that's a normal part of everyday life of humans and couples. And I think mm-hmm. that I, I so I like the First Amendment feminist. That uh, I, I really do. I like that term. Thank you. Yeah. And um, so you've yeah, written some lady parts as well. Yeah. Um, yes, I don't, uh, I don't know if anything I've written has gotten produced for them yet, but yeah, I participated in uh, Liz Winstead, who's wonderful and incredibly passionate about reproductive rights. Um, she's mostly based in New York, but she came to L.A. a couple weeks ago and had just marathon writing sessions, and very exciting, because it was like, all right, we've got three sketches that I think are very doable, and shot them in the living room of the house where she was staying, you know, it was, um, and, um, so that's some fun. So I can't I can't say that I'm like I'm a staff writer, uh, but I've been lucky enough to participate in some of those. Um, I think I helped write uh, one of the quizzes that went up. They had a very funny, what what is your hobby lobby birth control method quiz that I got to help write. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting and a very good grassroots like. Okay, we're having trouble. We're having trouble getting. You know, it's such a tricky issue for a political party to go after. And I think she recognized the need of we just need people who are willing to go out there and write and produce media and get the word out in other ways. And um, there's never been a better time for getting something on YouTube that makes your point, you know? Most definitely, most definitely. Well, I think that's great that you're, um, I mean, you're, you're a passionate feminist and you're, you're working for uh, AfterEllen.com that offers a feminist perspective on, uh, you know, the visibility and representation of gay and bisexual women, uh, queer, you know, it, encompassing mm-hmm. everything, as you said earlier. Um, and then you're, so, so you're kind of combining your, your passion with your craft. What other kinds of, of writing are you still doing? What, what is your favorite type of writing? Oh, God, that's such good. Um, I, you know, there's something wonderful about just writing something dumb and funny. Um <laughs> A dumb, funny essay is is nice. Like, um, uh, you know, the Feminist Friday is so, some of the things are so serious, but there are points where uh, just a ridiculous piece of news is so refreshing because you just get to play. Um, I am working on, you know, it's L.A., so I have a screenplay going because it's the law. And Uh I have a pilot going because it's the law. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoy that. and it's interesting, the other kinds of writing I do make me check myself about, like, okay, are these, uh, I really relook at what I'm writing a lot from, from a perspective of someone who is often cut out of media. Like, like, really, if writers use a bisexual character, it's usually so you can have the plot twist of, oh, cheating on you with the wrong gender, um, which, which makes us very sad because uh, to have that, prejudice reinforced over and over and over makes uh, your own dating life a little tricky. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so it's just one of those things where uh, I, it, it just makes me check my writing a lot. Like I write what's fun and I write what flows, but when I'm editing, I look at it for what are the things that bother me and am I doing that to someone else? So, 
uh, I know I have eight good female roles in this script. Am I giving the guy enough to do? You know? Like, it's, yes. just a, it's just a thing to check. This has been, you know, you've, every woman in, in, uh, in theater or film or TV has been up for that role where there's nothing there. And um, as an actress, that's a great challenge to create it. On woman, yes. So, you're, so you have yes. the opposite problem. I think that's great. But it is, but it's also like, but why do that to an actor? Like, it is one of those, like, okay, I hate that. Let me make sure that if I were playing that role, I'd have something to do. <laughs> it's just something, or it is, um, okay, I get left out of things because of my sexual orientation sometimes. Am I doing that to a person of color? Is there a reason why they would want to watch this show? Is there, you know, it's it's just something you have to apply in a lot of ways. Um, right, right. It, yeah. So, well, you're, and it's, so, so you're writing for a living, all different kinds of writing, and so you're, mm-hmm. you're doing some political writing, and there's, there's so much going on around the country right now, um, you know, in all of the legislatures and states and, and some national, too, um, to give the mm-hmm. feminist perspective on it. Is it hard to stay comic sometimes? Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, there's, there, there are... God, there are some of the bills out there are so cruel. How do you make a joke about that? I mean, there are there are states that offer rapists child visitation rights. I can't even fathom somebody would even write that bill, much less that it would, you know, people would consider passing it. That's amazing to me. So yeah, so how, how yeah. do you make a joke? Uh, how, how do you what? How do you make? T- well, it's hard. I mean, there are there are days where you're like, okay, this is going to be a tough week. <laughs> so, um, it's it's and then there's a point like so much of comedy is playing up the absurdity, is taking okay, if that's your idea, taking it and run with it. But then it's like, God, how much more absurd can you go than this? Um, so it's it's tricky, and there definitely are uh, there are weeks where I fail, and it's just a bleak column to read. I always put. I always put the reproductive justice thing at the top because I think of that as like the the vegetables you have to work through. Right. And then I put the fun stuff at the end. So it's try I try to I try to end it on a positive or a fun note every week. But yeah, there are some weeks where it's like, This is awful. What's happening in Texas is awful. Um and it's easy, I think it's easy for urban liberals to miss like, oh, a clinic's closed. Well, you just have to go another couple of train stops. No, if you've ever lived in a rural area, I mean, there are women, uh, there was an article in the Daily Beast just this week or last week where uh, a woman might have to drive 600 miles if she wants to get to an abortion clinic. And think about, think about that, it, just for any medical issue, think about having to drive 600 miles, think about having the kind of job where you can't just take days off um, and then having a waiting period. Uh, so just financially you can't do it. But then, like, the idea of having to do that after your rape is... And the fact that we we let it happen and we're letting it chip away because people don't see the full... You know, one of the great skills I learned at Second City is we had a teacher named Martin DeMott who said, make make comedy out of what makes you angry. And he said, that'll be a great source and it's a great way of taking care of it. So... Uh, it's there, but it's it's definitely a challenge. Um, it's different than I used to do. Uh, I used to do a column called "This Week in Terrifying Science," where we just found the scariest science. Like, why are you doing this? And the rule was, uh, if you're doing science that belongs in the first ten minutes of a horror movie, stop that. Uh, right. And that was. It wasn't like I had. I could just dash it off, but it was easy to find the funny there. Um, it's hard sometimes with the current news because there's. There's such a push in the state and local legislatures now, and it's from so many directions that it is, it's upsetting. And it is, you know, our our mom's generation's women used to die pretty mm-hmm. kind of regularly. Uh, and, and I don't think people are fully aware of how close we are to getting back to that. Or, you know, exactly. or in and places like Texas. Yeah. A lot of them really they can't fathom that these rights that have always been there could possibly be taken away. They think it's, it's not possible. It's, it's not possible, but it is possible, and, it, and it's happening. And so I'm glad that there are a bunch of people out there fighting it. Or do, you, do you do any more performing? Because I know improv is in your soul. Do you still do some of that while you're out there in L.A.? I do, uh, and I love it. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you know, once you have day job plus writing <laughs> plus mm-hmm. things, um, I don't do it every, you know, every Friday. I used to, back in Chicago, every Friday and Saturday night I was doing improv, which is um, 
It was just insane, but I loved it. And here, I just, like, I did a six-month or four- or five-month run with Second City in L.A. Uh, that was a Saturday night show that was just delightful, which was kind of perfect, of, like, here's, here's, my, here's my job, and then here's the weekend thing that feeds my soul. Uh, right. And um, I do some pickup improv every now and then. There's a restaurant out here called Poor House that um, does a basically a liar's club with wine once a month that I do. Mm-hmm. That is super fun. Uh, and if you're L.A., you should go to because you get to drink a lot of wine. So take a taxi. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so performing, I don't, I don't do it at the pace I used to. Um, I still miss it very much, but I definitely do it out here. The great thing about L.A. is um, when you move out here, you expect to move into an absolute snake pit, or at least I certainly did. Like, I just thought it would be awful. Uh, but it's not. There are, you know, there are hundreds and thousands of other people who have moved here with those same fears and don't want to live in a snake pit. So um, you just find those people, you know. So it's surprisingly welcoming to people who just want to get up and perform and to people who just want to find other people to make videos with or do stand-up with or perform with. Like, they're, it's out there. You just have to find them. And it's, it's a surprisingly friendly and welcoming community to people who sincerely want to... Um, to make funny, <laughs> to to get out there and do it. It's not it's not that you won't have to compete a little bit. It's not that you won't have to work and earn your spot. But if you're if you have a sincere interest and you really are ready to work at it, you're always going to find places to be able to do it, and that's been lovely. Absolutely, and I think that's the perfect note to end on. Um, I okay. the true porn clerk stories. And uh, we've got links on the podcast page to um, Ali's Twitter page and also to the Amazon page for her book. And I would like to thank Ali Davis so much for being my guest tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. This was very fun. I promise not to blog about you. (laughs) This podcast is owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and produced by Pam Stack. And thanks to our sponsor, Michael Lowndes, and PML Media. They are uh, PMLmedia.com.